But God's mercies will always endure because He is ever faithful, ever sure. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. Is there a little bit of a strange echo? No? Yes? Okay. As long as y'all are good, I'm good too. Let's pray. Father, You are ever faithful, ever sure. All of Your promises to us are yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray then, as You have promised to be our teacher, that You would teach us according to Your Word, that we would not only hear with our ears, see with our eyes, but also believe with our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. When I started studying this passage, I said to myself, Oh boy, how am I going to preach this passage? Here in, in Genesis chapter 23, God's name's only mentioned once, and that's in passing. When the Hittites referred to Abraham as a prince of God in verse 6, that was it. Basically, here's what's happening in Genesis chapter 23 Sarah died. Abraham then negotiated with the Hittites to buy a piece of property that included a cave so that he could bury uh, Sarah in the cave. And so then he buried her. Chapter 23 is over. Before I read the passage, however, a little background may help. You may wonder why there was such an extended negotiation for the land. When the Hittites initially offered this cave to Abraham uh, free of charge, Abraham would not take their offer. Uh, and the reason why he would not take their offer is he knew that there is actually, there's nothing that's really uh, that nothing's ever really free. He knew that he would be obligated to the Hittites in some way if if he took their offer of the free cave. He also knew that they may be able to say, "Hey, look, you know, we we did something nice for Abraham. This offer." But the Hittites made to Abraham reminds me of something that happened in Atlanta in the 1980s. There was a garbage strike, and so nobody's garbage was being picked up. And this was in December. So what this one woman did was she packed up all her, her garbage in boxes, and then she wrapped her boxes in uh, Christmas wrapping paper and took her car out to Lenox Mall, which is a really nice mall in Atlanta, and left her cars unlocked. And uh, when she returned to her car a few hours after shopping, uh, lo and behold, all her garbage had been taken. So very few things in life are really free. And this is borne out by, um, by Ephron, son of Zoar. Because when Abraham refused to take the free offer of this cave to bury his wife, Ephron offered his cave and a field that was adjacent uh, to the cave. And again, Abraham turned it down, said he wouldn't buy it. So then what Ephron did was he put a price on this field, and this was 400 shekels. Well, now, how much was 400 shekels then? It was a lot. It was a very, very unfair 
uh, price for this land. It was a ridiculously high price. Now, I'm sure what Ephron's doing is he wanted to, to start haggling with Abraham. You know, so you, you start high and you're willing to go lower. But this was a ridiculously high price. And Abraham does something uh, kind of surprising. He doesn't haggle. He simply um, paid uh, Ephron what he had what he had asked, so that there would be no possibility that he owed the Hittites anything. So look with me, Genesis chapter 23. We'll read the the chapter in its entirety, all 20 verses. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arabah, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his, his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property for you uh, um, from among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zoar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the, of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, the question is, how are we going to profit spiritually from this passage? Well, there's a reason why this rather mundane passage is included in the Bible. In fact, it is rich with spiritual meaning. 
I'm very excited about this sermon because I believe that it will actually be very encouraging uh, to you as you live as sojourners and pilgrims here in this world. I believe it will build your faith and strengthen your trust in God's promises. To understand this passage, however, it is very important to realize that Abraham was a nomad when he was living in Canaan. Being a shepherd meant that he moved around from season to season wherever he could find food um, he, because he had to feed all his livestock and he had a lot of livestock. So for instance, at the beginning of chapter 20, we find Abraham down in the Negev, uh, which is the southern part of Israel. It's a dry desert area. But for whatever reason, he was, he was down there to feed his flocks. And the Negev is, like I said, the southern part of Israel. It's down southwest of the, of the Dead Sea. It's the area just above Egypt. But at the end of chapter 20, Abraham is in Gerar, which is in the northern part of Israel, or northern part of Canaan. But then, in chapter 22, Abraham is in Beersheba, which is in central Canaan, just north of the Negev. And then when Sarah dies, Abraham is in Hebron. See, he's all over the place in Canaan. And Hebron was several miles northeast of Beersheba. In other words, Abraham had no permanent home. He moved his tents according to the needs of his flock. Abraham owned no land in the land of Canaan whatsoever. Here in chapter 23, with this extended discussion of Abraham buying a field with a cave, we have now the account of Abraham's first possession of any land whatsoever in the land of Canaan. Verses 3 and 4 confirm this, so look at verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner. In other words, I'm... I'm a wanderer. I'm moving around all over the place. And a foreigner among you, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Why is this important? Well, remember, God had promised Abraham. He had said to Abraham, I am giving you the entire land of Canaan as a possession for you and your descendants afterwards. Well, now it had been 62 years since God called Abraham out of the city of Ur over in Babylon. Abraham had been a wanderer, a sojourner for these 62 years. He had not owned even one square inch of Canaan to this point. So in chapter 23, the first concrete step in God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. This promise that Abraham would possess the land. Here's the point. God is faithful to His promises. That's why this extended negotiation is uh, included in the Bible. Because what God is doing is He is fulfilling His promises to Abraham. But yet it was such a small field compared to the totality, uh, compared to the scope of this promise. You know, this promise 
I mean, this field, maybe a few acres at the most, included a, a cave in it. The land that was promised to Abraham, if you do the math, was about 10,500 square miles. And so this one little field in this vast land of Canaan, this one little field, is like the down payment on the promise. God is beginning to fulfill His promise. Same thing happening with Isaac. Uh, God had promised your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. But at this point, how many descendants did Abraham have? Well, he had two. He had Ishmael and Isaac. And that was it. In other words, God is beginning to fulfill His promises. He's fulfilling His promises, but Abraham does not have the full the, the full inheritance yet. This has tremendous relevance for us. We have God's uh, promises, and God is faithful to them, but we only have a small portion of everything that God has promised to us uh, right now. We live between the now and the not yet. We have the promises now, but we haven't received the full benefit, the full uh, totality of those promises yet. We have eternal life now, but we will die one day. We are citizens of heaven now, as Joe Bethany mentioned in the sermon. Or in, in sorry, Freudian slip. In the, uh, in, in the prayer. But we're still living here on earth. We are forgiven of our sins now, but we still sin. In other words, as great as the benefits of our salvation that we experience now, what awaits us is far better. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 16 and 18 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We have an inheritance that is guaranteed to us. Ephesians chapter 1 says that that inheritance is guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us. In other words, the seal is a promise that the full inheritance will be ours when we stand before God, when we enter into heaven. But um, but now we have these promises, but we only experience them in a partial way. Let's, let's get real personal for a few moments. I know that living the Christian life is very difficult. As a Christian, 
living in this culture or living in any culture, any fallen culture for that matter, is very difficult. You either feel like you're a fish out of water or you feel like you're a fish that's going along with the current. And either way, for a Christian, is an unpleasant place to be. You're either struggling to be godly or you're being worldly and going along with the flow. Um, as I said, it can be it, whichever. It can be very, very difficult. And then you add on top of that uh, that God sends trials our way to purify us and refine us. The purifying and refining process is often painful. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And as we're going through the trials, and as they are painful, we tend to focus on the painful part rather than on the peaceful fruit of righteousness that will result. And so we live here in a fallen culture. Um, We also uh, experience the trials that we always are falling into, the trials that God sends our way to purify us. And then on top of those things, worst of all, we struggle daily with our own sinfulness. In the words of Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. A war rages inside us. I mean, a war rages inside us every moment of every day. It is difficult living the Christian life. And because it is difficult, because it can be very painful, it can be very tempting to give up or to shrink back in your faith. It can be easy to go through the motions and just kind of get by. And I know many true Christians fall into this pattern. Or to use the the metaphor of the fish in the river again uh, that I I referred to a few moments ago, many Christians fight against the flow of culture. But they get tired and decide to just kind of float along, let the current take them wherever they will. And then God will send a trial into their life to, to wake them up to remind them what's important. And they put more effort into escaping the pain of the trial than escaping the current that is sweeping them along. And so they become very pessimistic about the Christian life. And then their prayer life suffers. And then their Bible reading lags. And then their joy in Christ becomes more and more infrequent. Does this describe any of you? Or there's hope. There's nothing wrong with the Christian life. In fact, the Bible says everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul told the churches that we only enter into the kingdom of God through many trials and persecutions, through many sufferings. Paul said himself, he fills up in his flesh the sufferings of Christ on behalf of the church. It shouldn't surprise us 
Peter says, when we are undergoing trials of various kinds. That's just part of the Christian life. So there's nothing wrong with the Christian life. Nor is there anything wrong with the power of Christ. I think in reality the reason people shrink back or grow to, uh, or, or, or give up on the Christian life is they just get discouraged. And the discouragement uh, grows into a longer discouragement. And so I think many Christians who are struggling in the Christian life and who really are not growing in the grace of the Lord, who struggle to to pray even every week or to read their Bibles even once a month, um, basically having a, a prolonged pity party and uh, have taken their eyes off the promises and the power of God's promises. But listen, just like Abraham, he had this small little field with a cave in it. He had a son, Isaac. But the promises were much larger than that field. The promises were much larger than that son. That was just a down payment of all that was His in those promises. You too have a down payment of all that is yours in Jesus Christ. The full inheritance is is guaranteed to you. It may seem like a long way off. You may not be able to see it with the eyes of sight, especially those of you who are younger and think I've got decades and decades to go. But even though it seems like it's a long way off because of all the difficulties that we have to endure, I think it looks even longer simply because we grow discouraged. William Gurnall, a Puritan pastor, said, Oh, it is sad for a poor Christian to stand at the door of a promise in the dark night of affliction, afraid to draw the latch. And I think that's the way we live our Christian lives oftentimes. And Gurnall, here in this quote, gives us a clue for the biblical remedy for discouragement. What is that remedy? Listen to Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews mentions Abel, mentions Enoch, mentions Noah, mentions Abraham and Sarah, and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. And so they hadn't received the things promised. Not in their totality, certainly. But, that, but having seen them and greeted them from afar... They saw the promise. They embraced the promise. And then he goes on, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. In other words, Abraham, Sarah, Enoch, Abel, Noah, they took the long view. They looked past their difficulties. They looked past their sufferings. They locked in on the promises of God. And they allowed God's faithfulness to His promises be the power that pulled them through. It is not our strength. It is not our power that causes us to persevere. 
It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in the promises of God. It is God who pulls us through the hard times. So here we are in our present suffering. But afar off are the promises of God. How do those promises that seem so far off help us in the here and now? Well, the answer is always found in Jesus Christ. You know 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, even if you don't know that's the reference. It says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through Him we, we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Or other translations may have it, um, all the promises of God are yes and Amen in Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection from the grave is His eternal yes in regard to the promises of God. It is his, Christ's resurrection from the grave is His eternal yes in all your discouragements, sufferings, and afflictions. It is His yes saying, I will pull you through. I will not turn my back on you. It is impossible for me to be unfaithful to you because I cannot be unfaithful to myself. You know, uh, was it Romans 8.32? If God did not spare His own Son, the Apostle Paul reasons, but instead gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, He will give us all things. Everything we need for life and for godliness. I had us read, and I'm, I'm getting ready to conclude here, but uh, which is not to say that I am concluding right this moment. But uh, we, we, we read responsively from Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, here in, in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, the writer is reminding us of of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. And God wanted to make a promise to Abraham. And so He wanted to make a promise that that Abraham would understand is certain and sure. Now God didn't need to swear by anything because God keeps His Word. But He wanted Abraham to understand, I am going to be faithful to you. I am going to keep my promise. So, it's like he searched throughout the whole universe to find the most sure and certain thing that he could swear by, and he swore by it. And so it says here, um, in, in our responsive reading, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of, of His promise, He guaranteed it with an oath. Well, what was the oath? So by two unchangeable things, well, what are those two things? One, in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's one. Uh, And then two, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. I'm sorry, I I skipped over it. But the number one was earlier, where he swore by something great. Uh, He swore by himself. So number one, he swore by himself. Number two, it is impossible for him to lie. And so we, it says here, have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. 
a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. Where? What do we find? Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Christ rose from the grave. Christ opened up the way into God's presence. Christ is the seal and confirmation of all God's promises. They are yes to us in Jesus Christ. But still the issue remains. We are here in our present sufferings. The promises are there. How do we get those promises that we so greatly need? Well, faith reaches out and takes hold of those promises through Christ. Christ is the bridge. Christ, if you want to look at it from the standpoint of, of, uh, of a cowboy reaching out and lassoing the cow. Um, Christ is the rope between the cowboy and the cow, um, if I may say that reverently. He is the one between us. Faith takes hold of God's promises. I guess I should say. I, I, Christ is actually the substance. How would I say? Christ is the substance um, of those promises. And so faith embraces those promises. It is through faith that you are able to stand. It is through faith that you are able to persevere. But it's not faith in your faith. It's not faith in your faithfulness. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Now I am ready to conclude. I want to read uh, a stanza from a hymn in our hymn book. And it was a little bit too difficult for us to sing this morning. Listen to this. This is... um, Hymn number 617, My Anchor Holds. Troubles almost whelm the soul. Grief like billows o'er, o'er me roll. Temp- tempters seek to lure astray. Storms obscure the light of day. But in Christ I can be bold. I have an anchor that shall hold. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By His grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds, because Christ is our anchor. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that we have an anchor for our souls that lies outside of ourselves, that is infinitely stronger than our greatest strength. For our anchor is Christ. Father, I pray for the discouraged souls that You would stir up their faith in Christ. Father, for those who are tempted to shrink back, for those who are tempted to go along with the flow, for those who have um, stopped praying because they wonder how much power really is in prayer, how much effective, how effective it really is. For those who have stopped reading your word because uh, they just don't know how much um, it will really affect their lives, God, I pray that you would stir their souls to be reinvigorated uh, through Christ our Lord. And Father, I pray that you would help us all in our direst of moments, even in our happiest of moments, to embrace Christ, the anchor of our souls. We ask in His name. Amen.